Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has 31 years of law enforcement analysis experience with 43 years of law enforcement experience overall. She was part of the group to win the 2010 Herman Goldstein Problem-Oriented Policing Award. She teaches crime analysis for chief executives. She's the former president of the Southern California Crime Analyst Association. She's a stenographer turned dispatcher turned analyst, and she's the current VP of administration for the IEC, and she's always the life of the party. Please welcome Annie Mitchell. Annie, how are we doing? Yay! I had to give myself a little applause there. Uh, um, it's good. Jason, how are you today? Jeez, I, you're a tough one to introduce there. There was so much <laughs> that I could pick from, but I am doing well. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for asking. All right. And it's funny, when we talked a couple weeks ago, I was thinking that you had already been on the show because I had interviewed you when we did the IACA elections bit. Yes. So I was thinking that you were all already on the show and lo and behold, you have not. So you are long overdue to be a guest on this show. And I'm, I'm more than happy to be here. All right. So how did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? Oh, so we're going to start with the law enforcement analysis profession found me. I I literally fell into it. So just a small bit of background. I actually came on the sheriff's department in 1975. I'll give you the years and everybody Mm -hmm. can do the math, Um, (laughs) (laughs) which doesn't bother me. I own it. So I had come out of high school and I was in, you know, I was in college. I was in junior college at the time and I did something I will tell you, it's one of those things in life where I was a little stupid and I got married at the ripe age of 19 thinking that, oh, this is a great idea. (laughs) And I happened, (laughs) which it wasn't, but I happened to marry an LAPD officer. I don't want anybody to think there's a lot of terms for like badge bunnies or whatever. I wasn't that person. No one in my family was in law enforcement. He was the brother of my best friend from high school. So It was one of those things where he was working and he was working shifts and I wanted to be gainfully employed. And my skill set at the time was secretarial skills. So back in the day in high school, they had typing and um, shorthand, Greg shorthand. It'll be interesting (laughs) to see if anybody out there remembers what that is or even knows what it is. But it was a full curriculum of different secretarial classes, even like mimeographing and, you know, those things. Well, my mother was an executive secretary and she just gave me a little bit of advice going into my senior year and said, you know, I'm not telling you to do this the rest of your life. However, if you have these skills, you'll never be without a job. So this proved to be true. So when I was looking for a job, my cousin's wife worked for the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department as an intermediate stenographer. You had to be able to take shorthand. And she worked at one of the sheriff's stations and it was shift work. They, the secretaries worked 24-7. Clerks are what we call our, our clerical staff today, clerical staff. So I said, well, this sounds interesting. So I took the test and I was hired and I worked graveyard shift and it was uh, an eye-opening experience Fortunately, I grew up with three brothers, and so 
at 19 years old in a mini skirt and walking into that environment um, was quite interesting. And I'm certain <laughs> that some ladies out there will will uh, recognize what I'm saying. But I knew how to handle that environment. I knew how to handle men. And it started me off on this journey in law enforcement. Well, I did that for about two and a half years. It's oh. interesting that you say that because shorthand is essentially just a bunch of symbols yes. for the actual words. So with today, everything being emojis, this and emojis that I'm actually surprised shorthand doesn't make a comeback. I, there, there are some people that still, I have friends that still do it, but I, you know what I always tell people, okay, you have probably at work because they usually order them is steno notebooks. If you, if people know what I'm talking about, those were for stenographers that line down the middle of the sheet going vertically was when you were taking. So I would take shorthand for uh, crime broadcasts, right? I would, it would be dictated to me and I would, you know, do it in shorthand and then I'd put it on the teletype. But the line down the middle was, it basically broke the one page into two pages, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Sure. And then I used to take like use of force memos and, and anything, you know, the captain needed. And so, and then type it up on an IBM Selectric. So yeah, it was a, it was an interesting time and teletype machines. I don't know if anybody out there remembers teletype machines, but those were quite interesting. So, so I worked for about two and a half years as a station stenographer and you know, really kind of got into the world of law enforcement. And I saw a job bulletin for a sheriff's dispatcher. And I looked at it and I said, well, this is very interesting. I've been listening to the radio for, you know, a number of years. And I said, and it makes more money. <laughs> so, like people That's a good say, motivator. It was the motivator, to be very honest with you. I knew nothing <laughs> about it. And so I said, you know, I looked at it and I went, well, I still am going to work shifts and weekends and holidays, but at least I'll be making more money. So I went to the radio room. I worked in an environment that's very different from what we have today because in the patrol cars there were no there were no MDCs and there were no handheld radios. We were pretty much we did everything including we were that lifeline. It was it was a really task you know it was it, it was a tasking job. It was Los Angeles County so on a Saturday night you never stopped talking. You just went 100 miles an hour. But I will tell you to this day, I absolutely love that job. I That was my adrenaline rush. Officers like the chase. They like doing things. It was the same for us. So when they went in foot pursuit, they had to grab that mic and very quickly tell us their location and the suspect description and what they were, cha- what they were chasing him for. And we had to broadcast that and get them help. So I... I absolutely love that job. And so my personal life at that time, yes, I had gotten a divorce, you know, such a long two-year marriage. And then, so in that time period, I ended up marrying a deputy later who I am now still married to. You know, there's there's a lot of drama that goes on within (laughs) in our agencies. We are still happily married. Anyway, so when I worked for about 10 years as a dispatcher, and after we had our first child, our first daughter, And we were both working on Christmas. I thought to myself, you know what? I'm just going to go back to being a, you know, a secretary because one of us needs that weekends and holidays off kind of thing in a regular stability at home. 
Exactly. I didn't want to be at home. But anyway, so I looked around for another job. This is the good thing about, I like to tell people, I said, you did 43 years on the sheriff's department. <laughs> I said, well, here's the deal. It's not like I worked at one desk for 43 years. Yeah. There's a lot of movement, a lot of places you can go. Well, I looked, you know, job bulletins and there was a position at the station that I had left and it was in the crime analysis unit. There was a sergeant there who had him and there were two other stations. It was the California Career Criminal Apprehension. It was a, what do you call them? I do these all the time. It was a grant. I'm sorry. It was a grant they had received. And so there was a position available at that station for basically you were an assistant to the crime analyst. I was a systems aide, which was kind of a technical position. I have no idea to this day how I qualified for that, but I did. Mm -hmm. I walked in the door, you know, to this whole new world. Now you have to understand it's 1987. So we didn't have the tools that were available today. And we'll go into that a little bit more, but we did have a mapping program. It was called LandTrack. I've actually done (laughs) research on it. I cannot find anything anywhere (laughs) on the internet. So if anybody's listening to this, and they they know about land track, please send me the information because I would just love to show that to see where we're at. Basically, oh. it was an electronic pin map. Didn't do yeah, anything yeah. other than that. Well, it was before the internet, so it's not going to be on the internet. Yeah, you're, well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. So the analyst that was was working in there had come from the administrative side, worked at our sheriff's headquarters, and she actually hated it. She hated doing it. It's just, and, and this is something that I can teach an analyst, you know, the processes and procedures that we do, but it's something that we have that instinctual feeling. And when you're doing some work, she had nothing. She was like, I hate it. I just want to go back. I, on the other hand, coming from dispatch and really having a solid understanding of what was happening in the field. And all of a sudden this whole new world is opened up. I knew how that could be applied, how the data that was available at that time could be applied for patrol. And so I had a sergeant that, you know, she left and went back and he wanted me to be the crime analyst. However, I did not qualify under the civil service rules, right? We had minimum requirements for the job Mm -hmm. and I did not have those being a college degree. And so this is, so I, you know what? I wish to this day, I knew where he was. Sergeant Bill Miller, if you happen to be listening, (laughs) <laughs> which I'm sure you are. He, he paved the way for me and for some others too, but he went to our personnel bureau and said, I want to create a career path for people like Annie that are showing an ability to do this job. However, did not have the benefit of going to college. I did have the benefit. I just didn't go. Mm-hmm. I finished two years. And so they, what they did was they agreed. He, he sold them on this and it, I could exchange the experience on a year-for-year basis with the college credits. So at two years of college, I had to work two years, not getting the same pay scale. I was, it was quite a bit less, but doing the work. And then I still, once that happened, I had to wait for the test to open up and I had to pass the test and I had to qualify that way. They didn't just let me in the door. Um, What was the test questions like? Oh, well, in the sheriff's department, we go by civil service rules. Mm -hmm. And I'll be very honest with you back then, we just took a basic standard civil service exam. Okay. Yeah, there was nothing. We changed that much later on. We made it very analytical, but that's the way I got my foot in the door. 
And I think I talked to you about this, that that stayed on our minimum requirements. I think it's been about five years. They took it off about five years ago, but we had a number of people that walked in that way. So, okay. it was so now beneficial. they do require you to have a college degree I, now? Yes. Yes, they okay. do. Okay. All yeah. right. So then what did you learn from being a stenographer and a dispatcher that you brought in to be an analyst? Well, one of the things is from being a, a clerk, a stenographer, a secretary, the data. Mm-hmm. I understood how what data was being entered at that time. And I talked to uh, a lot of clerks today will take the crime analysis class I do. Sometimes they're from very small agencies and they're being asked to do you know some basic analysis. And I said, you have to understand, you know that data. I train analysts that that walk in the door with four years college experience, a certification and all those things. And they don't have that in-depth knowledge of how things are entered, you know, where they, you know, what the paper flow is, any of that. And I think that was huge for me. And the Mm -hmm. other thing was I took like center stage when it came to patrol and I knew what they were, how they were looking for people. So one of the things that I did, I started putting out bulletins. I knew that they needed to have a picture, you know, pictures and vehicles, faces and vehicles. That's what they focused on. And so my product development, because of deep understanding of the field work, that's what I took in the very beginning and then it evolved. So mm-hmm. we'll go into the evolution <laughs> as yeah. you asked me the questions, right? Yeah, it's, it's fascinating because I had on the show about a month ago, Lindsay Witter, who's from Tennessee, and she's also came up without a college degree. And when she got her first opportunity as an analyst, which she talked about, she volunteered to do all the photocopying. But she took that opportunity to basically read and understand everything that was being photocopied. So she understood all the data that was coming through the office. So in a similar respect to what you had, she knew with a little bit of time, she knew the data. Yep. And it's It is absolutely essential even today. And I have a problem today with everything is on a computer because Mm -hmm. there's something about reading those reports that takes you to a different place. And that's because back then we're we're talking 1987, there's no RMS, there's no typed reports. What you're consuming is handwritten reports from the officers. Correct. Yes. I will tell you that in on the LA County Sheriff's Department, they still handwrite their reports. We do not have the the yeah, we hand they still handwrite their reports. <laughs> I know that amazing. seems strange. Oh man. Yeah. It yeah. It was, you know, it's so interesting that you said that because when I because I do work with agencies, you know, evaluating their crime analysis unit, and it isn't just the unit, I look at everything and I ask the analyst well, do you know what the process is like from, you know, when the report is taken in the field and then, you know, what are those steps it goes through once that is entered into the system? Mm -hmm. You know, like, like if you were looking for something, would you know how to go find it? You know, do you understand all the data that's being put in? And for the most part, it's just a minimum amount of understanding of that whole process. And I think it's extremely important for an analyst to know everything. Hmm. All right, so let's get a better understanding of your career. Let's get okay. into your analyst badge stories. Okay. And the the first one, you know, you've been an analyst for a little while, and then you get transferred. You were the first analyst in the intelligence unit, correct? Yes. 
Yes. And... I spent time at Norwalk Station in that, that unit. I think I was there about 10 years. And then, it, you know, this is Annie. I like change. Um, mm-hmm. I like challenges. So I see a bulletin for an intelligence analyst. And so I got that position. And the first day I walked into the office, I sat right in, which is fantastic today. I still say you should sit with detectives. They had no other place for me other than sitting with the detectives. And I introduced myself. Hi, everybody. I'm Annie Mitchell. I am your new crime analyst. And I have no idea what an intelligence analyst is supposed to do. And they... They just, they kind of leaned back in their chairs and they looked at me and they said, we have no idea. We just know that everybody else we work with has an Intel analyst and we wanted one too. Oh man. (laughs) So this is a fantastic example though, for what every analyst should do within their career. I looked at that as this is good because uh, they don't know what I can do. I know what I can do. I just need to understand what they do. It's very different than patrol and detectives at a, you know, at a station level. And so I said, you just show me what you do. And then I will plug in, you know, little things here and there. So they were doing a lot of organized crime at the time. Mm-hmm. And because that was I think, what did I put on there? 1990, 1991, I think. And so I had, they had a lot of informants. So unfortunately I had to go out in the field with them and we went to a lot of bars. (laughs) (laughs) They They would be talking to different people. And I just, you know, I said, okay, so they, we just got some information. Here's a business. Now I will tell you, LexisNexis just was coming into the picture. LexisNexis at that time was a law library, but they were bringing in other other elements. Mm -hmm. And I, along with one other analyst, they taught us how to do searches in a DOS environment in (laughs) LexisNexis. So this is great, huh? You're like, why didn't I ask her to talk? This is an amazing history of crime analysis. (laughs) I was like, what's DOS? Yeah, what's, oh yeah, you probably know what it is, but... I do. Just think of a blank screen that you just have to start typing. Just uh, for those at home that don't know what DOS is, just uh, understand there's no, there's no GUI. There's no interface. It's just blank screen that you start typing on. But it worked. So, so I started picking up on that. My outside source intelligence was newspapers. Mm-hmm. We would get like from all over the country because we were doing organized crime. So any articles that I would find on the mafia in Chicago, which we're going to our conference or, you know, New York, then I would cut that out and I would put it on you know, like a, like a, like a cart, some cardstock. And then I would write a report, an Intel report about like a, like a synopsis of that, that particular case. And we had card files. So that was, that was my Intel side. And I learned That's when I went to the Fiat training. I got a lot of training. I moved from there. I was on loan to a joint drug intelligence group, which was a a task force. It was led by the FBI, DEA. So I did that for a number of years. And so an incredible amount when I, you know, they sent me to tons of training and gave me my own, my American Express card from the FBI. That's what you, oh, here you go. This is for your travel. Like you give me a credit card. (laughs) So it was pretty exciting. (laughs) Those were good times. Very, very good. Yeah. So that was my Intel years. Oh, and you you said you did that for 10 years? I did that. Yeah, I can't really. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, because that takes you right up to 2001, right? Yeah. Yep. 
I did. And then I went back to, because they were disbanding um, the unit. And actually they had an opening again at my station, Norwalk station. Though I went back there for a third time and I was an analyst. So I took the application of intelligence and I brought it into everything I knew about crime analysis. And so I didn't, we didn't label it, but I was doing Intel-led policing. Basically, I would put, you know, I wouldn't just do, you know, my maps and my basic products. I would look at my maps and I would say, now, what's, who's, I would ask the questions, the who, what, where, why. That's driving the numbers. Yeah. And so I started working closely with detectives. Hey, we've got, you know, we've got a lot of vehicle burglaries going on in this area. Any of you guys know anybody who might have just gotten out, you know, those kind of things. So I think it made me, you know, a better, a better analyst coming back in. And I, I still, to this day, teach that you have to apply that because why are you there if you're not applying those types of things? Yeah. No, that's a, that's a good point because I, I do think as an analyst, and, and I did this too, so it's not like I'm throwing stones in a glass house kind of thing. I w- would just produce a report or produce the data and not really understand what was behind those 43 burglaries last month. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So you do kind of get caught in that of just being a data machine or a report machine and not stopping and thinking how you can be truly helpful in that situation. Yeah. And that that's that's one of the keys to being that that indispensable person at work, that ind- indispensable analyst. Like I thought about something earlier before you came on and I, I thought one of the things that I, I will say to analysts is you know that you're doing a really good job when you say, hey, I'm going to be on vacation for two weeks. And they say, what are we going to do while you're gone? <laughs> right. What are we going to do without you? So, you know, that you have succeeded, right? I have become indispensable. I have become that person. I'm not just throwing stats at you. I'm not just, you know, doing those things. I'm actually like working with you as a team member. Like let's, let's try and rest. I think honestly, Jason, at one time I wanted to be a deputy and I think I was a frustrated, (laughs) a little bit frustrated. I actually was getting ready to go in the Academy and yeah, so I couldn't do that if I was with child. So that's, That's what kept me out of it, but it's okay. I don't want the danger of it, but I do want to be involved with providing leads and, you know, helping make, you know, helping the outcome of this. I do want to be that person. Good, good. All right. So let's uh, talk about a crime series now. Okay. So this, this happened when I came back from Intel. So like I said, I applied a lot, a lot more things and we had, we had this crime series going on and it, it actually spanned a few jurisdictions. And I had a really good network. I'm going to talk about networking at the end here, but I had such a good network. We all, all the analysts, you know, surrounding agencies, we all talk to each other often. So it was the, the MO of it was that it wasn't necessarily unique and it was, it was pretty easy to follow. It would be a group of usually four to five suspects. They were hitting restaurants in some fast foods near freeways, you know, we're in California, Right. Mm-hmm. Area I worked has like had like five freeways all around it. So I always had I always had crime series that involved those freeways. So and they were they were escalating in their violence. You know, they were they were going in, they were, you know, jumping on counters. They weren't just taking money from the register, they were taking money from customers. So it it was it started to become, you know, this is pretty serious. We've got to really help with this. And so there were two analysts at one of the share stations 
that was right that bordered my, me. Now, this is an interesting story in analyst processes. So we got together and we did we did a number of process processes with that, right? So we started doing like some link charts timelines. And then, you know, we've all done the standard deviation, like to do next hit prediction and all those. So they, they were doing that portion of it. I was doing another portion of it. Well, we had a disagreement about what we thought was going on, because in some of the cases we would have a different, like maybe a a little bit different suspects Mm -hmm. about the same number MO was the same. And so I said, but they're generally doing the exact same thing. I just think it's one of those, you know, where you have a group of individuals and then maybe one night, two of them can't come because, you know, they have to stay home with the kids or something. And -hmm. so they just bring somebody else in. Well, we got into a heated argument about it and we ended up just basically not working together. And so I just continued with my station. So I had a Lieutenant, a detective Lieutenant, And he was frustrated because the captain in the city was getting upset. And he said, he looked at me one day and he said, you know what? You're the analyst. Tell us where the next one's going to be. Pretty much with that, that tone. (laughs) And and being Annie Mitchell, (laughs) I was not fearful at all. (laughs) Well, a little. And I I said, fine, I'm going to find him. So I just looked and I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't do anything magic. I just looked at all of these cases together on a spreadsheet and I picked the day. I can even tell you what it was. It was Tuesday, uh, you know, on this particular date. I said, they're Mm going to hit on Tuesday between 2,200 hours and, you know, midnight. They're going to hit. And I actually, I looked at an area, an intersection that had four restaurants, one on each corner right off the freeway. And they had not hit that area. And I'm going to tell you right now, and this is for all the analysts out there, this was my best guess. When you make a prediction, you have to know it is, don't look for the hundred percent. You're not going to have it. And I used to actually give percentages when I'd give something like that out, I'd say, I'm about 65% on this one. Okay. (laughs) That was my disclaimer. Yeah. So what happens is you know, they, they plan an operation based on that information I gave them. As I walked out of the station, you know, cause they were all working overtime now. I was thinking, Oh, Oh God, please, please be right. <laughs> you're like, I gotta go do it myself. <laughs> so I'm yeah, right. Cause you're just like, Oh gosh. So the next morning I'm driving into work very early. And you know, this is when we we're getting information on a radio. So It was on a news radio station and they said, last night in Norwalk, there was a robbery, blah, blah, blah. And I went, my God, I think I did it. And sure enough, it was, it was the same. It was at like, it happened around about 1040 PM on that day. However, my location was off by a mile, Okay, but they were out there. They, they were already out there and they, the call, when the call came in, they all rolled over. They did not get the suspects, but through the witnesses and stuff, they ended up, they ended up making, you know, making a case. So that was a biggie for me. And I actually had one sergeant, I think he was a lieutenant time, went to the FBI National Academy. He called me and he goes, Hanny, I have to do this project. Tell me how you did that, prediction, <laughs> how you made that prediction. I go, are you serious, Chris? I, I mean, really, it was kind of luck and a little bit of looking at a spreadsheet. <laughs> so that was, that was a really good one. 
Yeah. So, so the other group then where you had the disagreement, did oh. they want to exclude certain cases yes. from there? Cause they didn't think it was the same group. You got and it. So, okay. Cause that, that I think that's always a, a question mark. A lot of times when you're doing series is, do you have all the cases and all, are all of these cases that you think are part of the series really should they be there? And because normally I don't think you know until the end, until after it's over. But at the time when you're trying to do stuff where you're trying to do probability of the next hit, and it's really difficult because a lot of times you won't know if you have all of the cases. And even one or two can really throw you off in terms of trying to predict the next event. Yes. And it's, you know what, I, when I teach, because you'll, you'll have analysts, you know, people that are learning and they, and they want it to be, you know, I'll give them like a spreadsheet of data and say, okay, give me the ones that are related. But they, they get so caught up in, you know, well, this one is kind of like, and this one is maybe, I said, you're never going to have this clear picture ever. It's mm-hmm. very subjective. And I explained to them what happened. So they wanted, the other two analysts wanted to make it two separate series. And I said, that's fine if you want to do that. I just don't think we can work together on this. I'm making it one. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, but you're, I'm really glad that you said that it there's, it's clear as mud, really. Yeah. Yeah. It's clear yeah. as mud and it's your best guess. Right. Math, you would have really shocked him if you had that full in the same location. If you if that would have been the location, geez, 10 10 40, right, right there, right in front of them, they wouldn't have known what to do. So but I'm impressed. Yeah. And you know what? That's what you need. I tell analysts, all you need is one success. Oh. You have one success, you can ride that way forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can. Tammy Michelson here with my public service announcement. What is it with some people who walk around in public on a call with their phone on speaker? I mean, come on, people, give the world a break. We have little interest in hearing one side of your conversation, let alone being subjected to hearing both sides of your conversation. This is noise pollution. Plus, does the person on the other end even know you're blasting them for the world to hear? Hi, my name is Brian Napolitano, and I'm here to talk about name badges. When you're attending a training or a conference, please make sure your name badge is at an appropriate height and is legible enough so that strangers won't be staring where they shouldn't, just so they can figure out your name. Thank you for listening. All right, yeah. let's get to the third Alice badge story then. <laughs> so this is a, a homicide where you're trying to find Bob. So we have homicide analysts now on the sheriff's department. Back then we didn't. So if there was a homicide in the jurisdiction, you know, where I worked, homicide detectives would come in and then they would work with the station analysts. So I came in in the morning, it was about 6 a.m. There's a little sticky note on my computer from this detective that, you know, we had a great relationship. And it said, Annie, you had a homicide in the riverbed last night. Suspect's name is Bob. Find him. (laughs) Well, okay. Like I said, we had a good relationship. Um, 
And he, he used to pit me with those other two analysts that were at the neighboring station. Like if I couldn't find something for him, he'd go, oh, it's not a problem. I'll just call them. They'll know, right? Uh, so yeah. I just thought he was playing games with me, yeah. right? And he he comes around the corner of my cubicle and, and I was reading the paper. That was my routine in the morning. I get there very early and I would read the paper and drink a cup of coffee. He goes, how come you're not looking for Bob? I said, all right, Kevin, I'll even say his name. Kevin, I have no idea. Uh, what is, are you just messing with me? You're going to tell me, you know, the other two are going to find him and I'm not, whatever. He goes, no, really? I really need you to help me. And I said, <laughs> oh, oh, okay. So do we got a little bit more than this? And he goes, yeah, I do. So he was a transient. And he said he, he might be on probation or parole. <laughs> and and he might use an address of his aunt who lives in Downey. And I and I'm just quiet, like, and and he goes, No, that's all I got. I said, he goes, Well, let's just, you know, in California we have access to parole data. And he said it's called parole leads. And he said, uh, well, let's just start looking. I go, so I'm gonna run Robert, Bob, Bobby. I don't even have a, a street name. I have nothing. And he goes, Well, it's okay, let's just do it. So I do it and it's you know, dead end. Time. Mm-hmm. And I, he's having me print all these things out. And then he's getting really frustrated. He goes, you know what? You're giving me nothing. I go, you know what? You're giving me nothing. And I said, look, I said, you know what? You're tired. You have been up all night. I get it. And what I told him was, I said, I need obviously more information. So for you analysts out here, you may or may not know this detectives and patrol keep little notebooks and they write notes in those notebooks. If you didn't know that, and they still do that today, I said, just make me a copy of your notes because as an analyst, we see the picture a little different than they do based on data, right? He might have something in here that he forgot to tell me. So I said, make me a copy of your notes, go home and go to bed. And I said, you know, come back and hopefully I have some. He goes, you know what? You're right. I'm sorry. It's a good idea. So he leaves. And then I go back to my coffee and newspaper. (laughs) But I did start doing a little bit more, but there wasn't much. Mm -hmm. Comes back about an hour later. I go, but you didn't go to bed. You didn't go home. You didn't go to bed. He goes, no. He goes, patrol brought in another transient that had more information on him and he's in the interview room. And I said, Oh, this is great. What do you got? Okay. The guy's name. Yes. Bob is his name. He definitely is on parole and he definitely <laughs> lives with his aunt in Downey. <laughs> and I said, we got nothing. He goes, what'd you do? What'd you do with those, you know, all those things you printed out. And I said, I shredded them because you, you kind of were getting on my last nerve. <laughs> he goes, well, this, we got to do this again. And I said, no, no, we're not. I said, is he, the guy's still in the interview room, right? I said, yeah. He go, I said, go ask him if he has a tattoo. <laughs> so he goes, ooh, good idea. And I said, ooh, analyst, homicide detective. I think I might win this one. <laughs> so he, he sure enough came back out, gave me a tattoo, and I identified the guy right away. <laughs> So it's a great, it's a great example for analysts. Don't think they know, they don't know the data. Like we know the data. Mm-hmm. It was simple. It was really simple. So yeah, I found Bob. Very good. So yeah, you have to have some kind of search criteria to start with. Yes. That's, yes. that's it. Yeah. So you probably got what about 
15,000 results the first yeah, time you much. searched <laughs> with the information that you had. Yes. Oh, man, that's funny. All right. So just a couple other highlights from your 43-year career. You were given a weekend to centralize the analyst unit. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tell me more about that. After working, as I promoted to a supervising crime analyst, and one other person was promoted to manager. And her and I had been analysts, you know, together. We knew each other very well. And you know how you know how things go in agencies. Some people do some things to feather their own nest and mm-hmm. don't tell the other people. Meaning there was a chief and a, a lieutenant and a sergeant that were putting together this new enhanced crime analysis unit, but never went to the manager and said, hey, we're working on this. They had been working on this for quite some time. And they got approval and they gave us a call on a Thursday and like the end of our day, kind of a Thursday and said, hey, <laughs> you're going to become a centralized unit effective Sunday. So you, you need to work on all the processes and, and you know the onboarding of that and what that looks like. And it, we were pretty much floored. <laughs> and so Liz Rodriguez is the manager. She is still the manager. So there's a little name drop and hi, Liz, you'll probably listen to this. We had a really tough time. <laughs> Putting that all together in such a short so. period. And we had families at home. So, but I will, I'll just say just briefly about this is that when this happened, we kind of took the challenge and we started thinking about all the things that hadn't been done with these 27 crime analysts that were at a lot of different locations. And we knew that there was some training that needed to be, to be done. We needed to have some conversations with their, their captains at those units and how are things going? How can we improve? Because now they, we were their direct supervisors. In the past, the captain lieutenant would be my supervisors. So now we were taking it over. However, this was a good thing. In the at the end of the day, it wasn't the process wasn't done well. And I will tell you those that the analytical unit from grew from 27 and they have over 80 analysts today on the sheriff's department. I'm not going to take credit for that. The only thing I'm going to take credit for is we did bring them to together in a more cohesive way and provided with them with a lot more training and mentoring. And those analysts just took it and ran with it. And because of the work they were doing, not anything that we did, they were they were becoming that indispensable analyst to where the each unit, they were the ones that would budget for more analysts. We didn't have to budget through the unit. They said, we need more analysts. Homicide had nobody. They now have seven analysts. And that was because of the work that those analysts are were doing and still do today. Okay. So centralizing at this point is just in terms of structure and not physically being in one location. Yes. Which, yeah, they're all over. It's a huge County too. Okay. So I I did a lot of driving back then. (laughs) I would imagine that you established some standards as well. Well, yes, we definitely did. And then I became the training coordinator and brought in, you know, all the new analysts and I, I created, they developed a training curriculum. So yeah, it's, I mean, it was, it was all that stuff that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. I just said, this is how you should be an analyst. I just yeah. based it on what I was doing and what I knew was successful. And then I helped anybody who, you know, needed more help. Yeah. So it's always 27 people. It's just hard to get everybody on the same page and yes. to get them to follow the same standards. Cause after a while, everybody does their 
thing a little bit differently and to, to have everything look the same look and feel and the same process. It's, it's very difficult to get everybody on board. Yeah. I can't say that the, each analyst didn't, you know, have their own, you know, their own style or, you know, we didn't, mm-hmm. we didn't really, we didn't tell them like the bulletin template looked the same, but for the most part, we let their unit commanders drive what it is that they wanted. Mm-hmm. Right. And so a lot of times they would go through us. They would call us and say, can you maybe have them do this or show them how to do this? I'd like to see that. But each unit could be a little bit different. We gave them license to do that. Hmm. So that's interesting. And I think you had a pretty good attitude about it. I, cause I know I would not react well if I was given that task late on a Thursday and said by Sunday, you have to have something. I would have not responded well to that. And it sounded like you accepted the challenge and, and certainly put your best foot forward. So kudos to you and, and Liz for doing what you could well, when you could. Well, it's not like we didn't, you know, when we hung up the phone, didn't have a few things. To say. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. That was not. Yeah. And there was some other big, you know, there's, there was a lot of potholes along the way, you know, one of the things that was so difficult was, you know, timekeeping. I won't even go into that, but (laughs) what frustrated me the most is like, this happens the next week starts and we're still working on this really hard and analysts calling me and complaining to me, well, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you have it? You know what I mean? And I, I did kind of lose it a few times. Yeah. Yeah. It's hmm. like, give me a chance. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So you're there 43 years. And I know, as you mentioned earlier in this interview, it wasn't as if you were at the same desk, yeah. but you were still going to the same general place. You were still had the same employer for 43 years. Yes. Yes. How did you know it was time? It's funny. I went to lunch with some friends today and we just had this kind of a conversation. So I I did start as a teenager. So in order to get the most out of my pension, I needed not just the the years, but I needed the age. Mm -hmm. So I actually went out about two years earlier than getting my maximum right? But I did reach a point where I just said, okay, I I need to be done. You know, there were some stressful things happening and I was never a stress puppy. And and I was finding out that there were things happening that I just needed to, okay, it's time for me to just step out. So that's how I pulled that plug. But like everyone knows, I I still have remained in the field because, you know, they said, oh, you didn't retire. I said, well, no, this is retirement. I, I am the, you know, I control what I do. It's not driving to Los Angeles County, a, a round trip of 64 miles a day. I yeah. said, but I'm passionate about this job, about this profession. And I love it. I love talking with analysts. I, I love that there's so much out there now that there's not, not a foundational piece for analysts. I try to provide, look, you've got to establish this before you can go over there. So I, I just, I love it. I love what I do. I, I just really enjoy it. So I stayed in it. So I'm semi-retired. Yeah. Cause you're still teaching. You're still consulting. Mm-hmm. You're still active in the association. So you're still there. You're yes, still here with us. Yeah. For a while. <laughs> I don't know how long. I don't yeah. know when to pull that plug yet. Yeah. Hmm. All right. So I, I want to get to the point now, just talking about deficiencies in law enforcement analysis. So certainly 31 years as an analyst and then 
you're traveling the country now teaching and consulting. So from your vantage point, what are some of the major deficiencies you see in law enforcement analysis today? Well, first of all, we're, we're a little more in the forefront than we ever have been, right? Because these chiefs, you know, go to a lot of conferences and there's a lot out there about, you know, data-driven approaches and, you know, they, they have a lot of ideas for us. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's good and it's bad because what I see is you have a chief or a captain that comes back and they, you know, talk to other people and now, oh, their crime analyst does this. You know, I want you to do this. And they keep taking them in all these different directions. And for a good number of these younger analysts that are just coming in, they don't necessarily take control of their role right? It's like, I just wait for them to tell me what to do, or I, I don't have time to do this other, this other thing over here because they're having me do, you know, all these administrative reports. Do you understand the data? Do you understand all the data that is there? Are you reviewing reports on a daily basis? Because of the, our, all the electronic age out here, I think that they are missing so much by not reading narratives. Some maybe reading those narratives, but I mean, uh, so many series, so many things I found in there, it's, they're missing. So what I would say, if I were to narrow that down, I would say our profession is definitely grown and it is growing exponentially. Like the amount of people that want to be crime analysts now, or just interns is, is quite big. Like the, the interns are having a hard time because it's like the market is being flooded. However, what they aren't doing is saying, okay, I'm going to walk in the door. I understand the data. I understand what are the types of things that need to be pushed out to all the different stakeholders, right? Identifying that. This is that foundational piece. I think they're missing that. And so they walk in and they wait for somebody to tell them what to do. And I said, you cannot do that. Most of those people have no idea what you really can do. You have to show them. So I see a lag in that area for them. And I hope I've had so many people say to me, I never really knew about all of this, all that foundation stuff. And it's, and it's helped a lot of them. So I think that for me, and I, I will say one thing about the records management systems out there, all the new vendors. I don't like these. It's record management system. <laughs> That's the one thing you're going to say. I don't like any of them. I, I love don't. It. Jason, <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Like we have to work with them. You know, it, Lori Velarde is my, uh, there's another shout out to somebody. A lot yeah. of people know Lori. People are dropping those names. It's good. Yeah. She's, I'm a name dropper. Yeah. Uh, but Lori and I go together because we have two completely different skill sets, right? I'm more tactical. She's that automation girl. Jason, you would appreciate that. Yes. So I say, you need to automate those reports right? And here's Lori Velarde here to help you do that right now. So yeah, the RMS, like, so we have to work with these different systems when we're helping and we're just shaking our heads. (laughs) I there's a, I think they're only getting maybe half of what they should be getting. So is all they're getting is reports from the RMS and not dealing with backend databases, writing SQL and, and the like. So is that yeah. why they're only getting this a short portion of it? Yeah. Because there's a learning curve on that. Yeah. Right? There, there is, I mean, like I've been working on, you know, teaching myself SQL, but you know, I was, it's difficult for a lot of people. It's difficult for me. So I, it, I know some analysts just kind of give up and just do the basic stuff. Hmm. 
Do you think there's too much data? That's a really good question. Um, I, I guess what I mean by that is you're thinking about when you started, you were working with the detectives, you were reading the reports, you were interviewing with the detectives, asking questions back and forth. And today, not only do you have all this data that's in a records management system at your disposal, you have everything that's going to be in the CAD, you have everything that you have access to at your city, and then you're going to add the social media aspect to, to everything. And it's so much data to try to consume and identify different things that it just all becomes noise. And because there's just so much data. That's a very good point, because I, I agree with you on that completely. And they're overwhelmed. I think they're overwhelmed. Like what's important? Yeah. Yeah. So I think you have to prioritize. I think that's, that should be some, something that, you know, is a takeaway from this, like prioritize what you have and what, you know, what you need to do first. And then the other stuff can come. Well, I think too, you have to delegate. So analysts have to do various roles, right? But it only works well if there's a good documenting system or a good communication system back and forth, Mm -hmm. right? So you can have four or five analysts working all the different avenues of data, all the different sources, but you all have to communicate to one another so you can all connect the dots to what's going on. That's the difficulty. Because I think, again, back in 87, you were reading all the reports. You were working with all the detectives. So you remembered what that detective said to you three weeks ago or what you read in newspaper yesterday. And you had it all in your head. But now there's so much data there's not possible for someone to keep it all straight. And you you brought something up that was interesting about like I kind of look at it like things being siloed. I don't like a separation of like let's say you're, you're a large agency and you have you have your intel analyst, then you have your crime analyst, and then you have I, I don't care for that model. And you just kind of said something that prompted that in me, where I mean, I always said, so don't you think I should know what the intel analyst knows because are they're looking at you know, offenders. And, and so do they know the crimes that are happening over here? And maybe they're related. I mean, I think there's a disconnect when they do that, when they separate all the analysts out. I don't like that either. And there's already this whole idea of need to know in the intelligence world anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 So it's unfortunate there. Hmm. Yes. All right. Well, we're not going to solve that one today, so no. we'll move on. <laughs> Let's talk about the IACA, and I'm smiling because you're currently VP of administration, and I've yes. talked about this on the show. You and I were part <laughs> a part of what I've deemed the the worst presentation ever, and that was, I forget what IACA conference it was. The last day, I did a video montage at the conference, and everything went wrong with that presentation. My laptop ran out of battery. I interrupted the the, spe- the previous speakers. The video, I think, quit working on me. And you gave me a squirrel video like two minutes yes. before I was supposed to go on. And I was, oh my goodness. And then I had somebody instant message me right in the middle of the presentation. It was by far an example of what not to do. So it was like, don't be that am I don't be that analyst. 
plus moment of giving a bad presentation. That term dope, right? Yeah. It was, well, okay. So when the way I came into IACA, it was very similar to the way I came into crime analysis Mm -hmm. because I received a phone call one day from Christopher Bruce. Yeah asking me if I would be interested in someone had, we had a vacancy on the board, like midterm. Mm -hmm. And so they needed a VP of administration. And I get this phone call from Christopher Bruce. You know, I I know I wasn't number one on the list because I, (laughs) you know, I laughed about it later. I was just the first one to accept it. But because I had been a president of a regional association, I think, you know, they thought I was qualified. So um, I I said, let me, give me a day to think about this, right? Because I had never... I never saw myself like that. And so then I took it and I I absolutely, I will tell you, I love being on the IACA board. I think currently we've made a whole lot of changes that a number of people have wanted to see for quite a while. And we're still working on that right now. But I, <laughs> it's funny when, because you're talking about New Orleans. Mm-hmm. So that was the first conference that I was going to as a board member. And Jim Mallard was the president. And because he was in, oh, he was um, in Florida and there was a hurricane. Yes. That's right. And he missed it. So you were the MC. MC. Yes. <laughs> but it couldn't have been at a better place because I love New Orleans. Yes. And I packed in my bag my Mardi Gras uh, queen m- crown and beads. And I just, you know, once I got on that stage, I was, it, it, I loved it. Right. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, and just for those that don't know, Annie puts on a legendary Mardi Gras party. (laughs) Yes, they do. (laughs) Yes. From what I hear, I have not been there, but I have heard legendary stories of this annual event. It is. (laughs) It's a good event. Yeah. I don't know if you remember, Jason, but um, every time I'd walk into like be on the stage, I would yell, who dat? Who dat? Everybody liked that though. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I haven't had anybody on the IACA board for a while. So what are you all working on? One of the things that we wanted to get in with was the International Association of Chiefs of Police. We do attend their conference every year. We have a booth in the exhibitor hall that is well visited and um, it's kind of exciting. And we, you know, we're always looking for things to push out so that all of our members, uh, executive staff have that message and what we're doing, what analysts are doing. One of the things that's kind of exciting, and this is going to be going on the week of May 23rd, Mary Berticelli and Kristen Lottman, they're, they're going to be doing a presentation, you know, when they had put at the IACA technology conference. We tend to get shut down a lot. We have not been able to do any uh, presentation. They come back and, and say, thank you very much. But I'm excited. They are going to do a presentation and it's your crime analyst is your superpower. So I'm looking forward to how that goes, but it should be great. I I don't want to say it, but the new website should be launching very soon. Okay. So that is kind of a big deal. One of the things that we brought in is I brought in the regional associations committee because I always felt there's been a, a disconnect between regional associations and the IACA. You know, sure. other than we just, you know, you pay a little bit more tuition and you get to be in the IC. And that that group is taking off very, very well. We're right now working on bringing in Chile as 
not a regional association, but they would, there will be a chapter. So we've not done that yet. We did a very intense bylaw review and we went through that process and we're just making a lot of changes to the way we do like our committees and benefits and, and those types of levels. So, and we get together often, we speak often. Oh, and I also, we love having Rachel and we have an international member on the board. We absolutely love it. And fortunately for poor Rachel, the, you know, less than a month after she becomes the VP of membership, the pandemic hit. Sure. So we have not been able to be face to face with her once. So oh, every- I didn't think about it that way. You're right. Yes. Yeah. So she will be in Chicago and we are all very, very excited about that. So, Excellent. So yeah. just, you mentioned Chile. What's the mm-hmm. difference between a chapter and a regional association? Well, I just said, you know, we're going to bring them in as a regional association. And then we started talking with some people at ILEA mm-hmm. and they said, because of different like banking laws and, you know, there's so much that comes into this, by the way, we have ours as chapters. And then I just, before this, I was just reading, they have a, like a, a toolkit for it, like how you bring them on. I couldn't okay. sit here and tell you everything, but they said you should bring them on as a chapter because of all the different, you know, the different laws. It's different. Yeah. You know, yeah. And I was at the IOLEA conference in Dallas a couple of weeks back. And one of the things I mentioned to them is there's certainly some people that can't travel to the association, but I don't know what it was about that hotel. That hotel had the best Wi-Fi I've ever experienced at a conference. I agree with that. I thought that I said that because we were having, you know, we had three of us from the board, our board, and we were doing a little board meeting when we were there. And I go, is this internet fast for a hotel? I said the same thing. Yeah. Cause, and what my point was, is if the hotel's internet is going to be that solid, then you could set up scenarios where you could have people zoom in, right? That can't be there. So in your situation, I think it would be interesting if you could set it up so all the different regional association presidents could zoom in on the big screen all at once. Just if not anything, just to have their presence there all at once. Oh, do you mean at the conference itself? At the conference in Chicago. Big stage, you have all the different regional associations present on a Zoom call. Not that I expect them to all talk all at the same time, but the the sheer presence all be in there at once to be recognized would, I think, would be really cool. You know what? That is That is a really good idea. I really do like that. Chicago is a union town and it'll be interesting. Like it has to do with like the bandwidth that you use and all that. But I kind of think that would be a super thing to do. And I don't know if it was just that hotel in Dallas, but I was really impressed. So we got Chicago coming up at the end of August, which I'm super excited about because Chicago is one of my bucket lists that I have not been to. So I am really looking forward to that. Is there a theme this year? Theme? Other than our our welcome reception is going to set up as a speakeasy. Oh, (laughs) nice. Yeah, that hotel, the Palmer House, has a history um, with Mm. Al Capone. Nice. So get your outfit ready. Oh, man. (laughs) That is really, really awesome. Yeah, we generally don't have a necessarily a theme mm-hmm. i don't think it's something that we've ever maybe we've done it in the past but it's not oh. a bad idea oh. yeah interesting hmm. all right well let's go on to personal interest then because oh. you are a golfer 
I am a golfer. And what's your handicap? Oh, no, let's not talk about that because okay. I didn't say I was a good golfer. Okay. <laughs> well, it's okay. But I mean, you play uh, no, golf regularly. I do play golf quite regularly. I belong mm-hmm. to a women's league and we play every Friday. I don't necessarily pr- play every Friday, but yeah. And I should tell you, I was on the board for our women's league. It's sure. like, I can't. Yeah. I, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to do this. Okay. <laughs> yes. I was on the board for a few years, actually. So yes, I'm a golfer. I am right. a golfer. Yes. Yeah. So and, is it just a social thing you like to get out type thing? No, I'm kind of competitive. You are competitive. Um, All right. Yeah. And and I was just in a tournament. I mm-hmm. have a friend who belongs to a country club and they had a two-day tournament. Mm-hmm. And we actually came home with some cash. We, nice. we did well. Yeah. Is that like a so, best ball tournament? It's a, it actually wasn't. It was called an eclectic. So an eclectic is you play two rounds. So mm-hmm. you play one round, just it's your full score. And it's your foursome score, not just an individual. Mm -hmm. And then the next day we play another round. And so you can better a hole, right? So I, let's say I got a eight on a hole, which I did. And then the next day I got a, I got a five, right? So then your, your score, it's your best score over the two day period is an eclectic. All right. So in that case, you would get a five. Yeah. Instead of the snowman. Yeah. So overall, <laughs> so they give like first gross and first net and we mm. actually tied for first net, but they had a card off and we lost the card off. So we got second place. So, but so what's, a, what's, what's a card off? Okay. If you tie mm-hmm. another team or another person for us on in our league, because I actually did uh, the calculations every Friday for the games and we paid mm-hmm. out, had payouts every game. Anyway, so I would say, oh, these two people tied. So our card off, the, the tiebreaker, card off is a tiebreaker. Mm-hmm. So it was the um, total of the back nine, whoever had the lowest oh, okay. total on the back nine, All right. one. Yeah. So have you been playing most of your life? I started playing when I was 16 years old. At high school, they used to let you do electives for PE. And mm-hmm. I had a friend whose sister was a professional golfer and she goes, let's try golf. So I started playing then, but you know, I mean, I did, I rarely played. I had children. I would play occasionally when I worked, I would go play with, there's a group of, you know, guys that I used to go play golf with. So off and on, but more since I retired, obviously. Yeah. Very (laughs) cool. Yeah. I, I golfed a lot in my twenties and early thirties. Oh, and I still wasn't any good. I I think the more I played, the more frustrated I got because oh. I expected to get better given how much I played and I didn't really get that much better. Nope. But then had kids and, you know, then went almost a whole decade without playing. And mm-hmm. I, I played a couple of years ago here in Tallahassee. And, and I thought, well, let's, let's see if this opens the door for me. And I was like, nope, I have no interest <laughs> in playing this game anymore. It's it, past me now. I feel it's definitely a lesson in frustration. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Not so. good. Not good. Uh, All right. Well, hey, I want to finish up with some callers. We got some callers on the line. We're going to play favorite first jobs. And do you have a favorite first job? I think my favorite first job was stuffing envelopes. Oh. And I don't know why it was, it was just my first job, but I can still remember, I had a couple of us did it. And I, (laughs) I remember listening to Summer Breeze, that song. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Like the summer breeze playing on the radio. Yeah. 
Oh, that's that's funny. <laughs> All right. So we got we got five callers lined up, and we are going to ask them their favorite first job. So first on the line is Jenny. Jenny, what is your favorite first job? Well, during Expo 86 in Vancouver, I managed a frozen banana stand that was called the Copa Banana. And it was the most fun I ever had in a job. Copa Cabana. Man, there's, I, I, there's just something about uh, like serving ice cream or I, I worked at an amusement park. Was one of my, it was my first job that I had. I earned $3 an hour at an amusement park in the 80s. To me, there's something about serving the food, serving the treats. It, it is nostalgic. At the time, you think it's the worst job in the world. But when you look back at it, it's, it's a fun time it's a special time in your life to those those teenage jobs yes that's it that's all you're gonna give me is yes oh i'm sorry (laughs) i I mean this this is kind of a talk show you're supposed to react so what was the amusement park you're in florida it wasn't disney world was it no no this was when i was in pennsylvania so i'm a pa boy Oh, so, was it yeah. Hershey's? Was it, it was no, it was a, it was Conneaut Lake Park. It's in northwestern Pennsylvania, and oh. so I flip burgers for them. But every once in a while, they would say, "Hey, go make cotton candy." They need help making cotton candy, or go work this custard stand, or or whatnot. You would get rotated around every once in a while, and. And so I was 14 years old and it was just really awesome. I have a uh, question. What was your uniform? What did it consist of? So the uniform was khaki shorts with a teal college shirt. Like a polo shirt? No hat? No hat? There was a hat. It was white with the Connie Lake Park logo on it. So that was, uh, that was my, one of my favorite first jobs. So Jenny there serving ice cream. I, I totally relate to her. All right. Next on the line is Kristen. Kristen, what's one of your favorite first jobs? So one of my favorite first jobs was working at a pizza place. And while I hated working with food, I loved the little challenges that I was able to set for myself to, to keep myself motivated. I'm going to comment on my, my partner on the board, Kristen. Like, really, she, she sounded very smart there with, you know, I love the challenge of making pizza and going with either pepperoni or sausage. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so it's like one of those things where you, in an interview you ask for a weakness and you totally turn it into a positive. Like that's exactly how she sounded there. She's like, I hated the food industry, but I made it a challenge. So it was yes. good. Whatever, Kristen. <laughs> awesome. All right. Next on the line is Aaron. Aaron, what's one of your favorite first jobs? During college, I worked at the airport information desk in the mid-2000s. And I'm not a customer service person, but it involved a lot of problem solving. As you can imagine, people at the airport have a lot of problems. But while I was there, I worked with a then yet to be identified serial killer. The Phoenix serial shooters were very active during that time. And one of them was a janitor at the airport who I worked with and just casually talked to. And then when I moved to D.C. is when they actually arrested him and he was prosecuted. But yeah, so I worked with a serial killer at the airport. Now, that is a crazy story right there. So I can't say that I ever knowingly 
talked to a serial killer when I was in my favorite first job. So that's pretty impressive by Aaron. Not to mention scary. My daughter was going to Arizona State during that series. Yeah, that's really scary. Yeah, but I think it would be really cool to work at an airport. Oh, yeah, I I could see that. See, there being a lot going on. I mean, none of them seem very happy, so it must be miserable. (laughs) But I would think maybe when I retire, that'll be one of my retirement jobs. I'll work for like two months at the airport and then be like, oh, F this. (laughs) I'm out. (laughs) All right. Next on the line is Steve. Steve, what's one of your favorite first jobs? Favorite first job, 16 years old. I was working for Jack in the Box and I was working on the midnight shift with another guy. And Jack in the Box was open 24 hours a day. So after the drunk stopped coming in at about two o'clock in the morning, our job was to clean the place up. And we would clean the place up and then spend the rest of the time venting hamburgers. I can't say that any of them, you know, made it into production line. We sure had fun doing it. Anyway. Oh, so, you know, that would be pretty cool to just sit there and create new burgers at a burger joint. I would want to do that just to create new ones. Never worked in if... the food industry. None of this you sounds enticing. <laughs> you didn't? Man. No. Uh-uh. Wow. I never did. And, I, and I'm glad I didn't. I don't think I'd like it. I don't know. I, you would do awesome as a server. You're t- I'm an awesome cook, though. Yeah, well, I mean, you're so personable, and I could I could see you working at a diner. Good. I could yeah. do that. You know, yeah. and just knowing everybody, knowing all the locals coming in, and, yep. and just being so personable, I could see you doing that. But Jack in the Box, I don't, it's been a while since I've been in Jack in the Box. They have oh. the best tacos that isn't real meat. <laughs> <laughs> what, so, what is it? I don't know what it's made out of, but it. Jack in the box tacos. There's something about them. <laughs> but they're not real. Do they advertise that they're not real meat? Or are you no, just it's, question it what is kind some of meat? meat product mixed with something else? Oh, okay. That's yeah. <laughs> that's and, a nice visual. And they're very greasy. <laughs> oh yeah. So and I don't know, I'm trying to think. I don't think Jack in the Box are nationwide. So I'm not sure how many people know of Jack in the Box, but I don't even know how to really compare it to anything. It's just a no. It's just a burger joint, really. Yeah, it's just a drive-through burger joint. Yeah, so we have I don't a lot know. in California. The, and I think their mascot is what? What is that? I don't even know what that mascot it's a is. Clown. It's, it's supposed to be a clown to me. That's it looks a clown. Like a, it looks like a something skinny with a snowman head. No, it's a clown, but he's wearing a suit, oh, but he has a pointy hat. Yeah, I don't know. So, but anyway, so. I have one right down the street from me. There you go. <laughs> All right, last on the line, Todd. Todd, what's one of your favorite first jobs? My favorite first job was working as a security guard at Six Flags in the summer. That pretty much just required me to walk around the amusement park and make sure nobody cut in line, which was a pretty good gig for a college kid. Yeah, see, so Todd worked in the amusement park too. So yeah, that would be, I don't know about security guard because my view of an amusement park is by the end of the day, the kids are tired and crying. Uh, mom's angry and dad's drunk. That's my horrible stereotype of a family at a amusement park. And so I wouldn't want to deal with any of that. And then you're dealing with employees as, as a security guard. I, I don't think I'd like that too much. To mention he was just a college kid. Yeah. Right. It's it, it would be. Yeah, I don't I don't agree with that either. And I like your um, analogy of what. <laughs> 
things look like an amusement park because we live only 20 minutes from Disneyland. Oh, and, yeah. Um, yeah. And the last time I went with my daughter and, and the kids and stuff, I mean, by the end of the day, we were just, we were all ready to kill each other. <laughs> it was like, okay, I'm done. I'm done with Disneyland. I've been enough times. Yeah. Don't miss the magic. Don't miss the fun. Yeah. Yeah. I love it, but. All right. Well, our last segment to the show is Words to the World. And okay. Annie, this is where you can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? It's hard to just do one, but I love to become a master of your domain, take control of your role. And one of the easiest things that you can do as an analyst is your most important asset network because we're better together. Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you. You've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. Okay. (laughs) But I do appreciate you being on the show, Annie. Thank you so much. And you be safe. (laughs) Jason, it was a pleasure. And I hope everyone gets something out of this. And hey, just email me. I'm on the board. (laughs) All right. And we'll put her email address in the show notes. Check it out. All right. Thanks, Jason. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.